0: Welcome to the
1: Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. And welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today I'm sitting down with the owner of the Elite Performance Center, co-founder of Kabuki Strength. Chris Duffin, who likes to exercise. Chris is someone who's accomplished a ton in lifting. He's deadlifted 405 for 40 reps, uh, a squat a thousand pounds for a triple. Uh, I saw you at the cage. he rode 600 for a double. then he deadlifted 885 all within like five minutes. The strongest power lifter I know named Chris, probably the strongest power lifter named Chris in the world. Project Fitness Podcast welcomes you, Chris Duffin. Thanks for having me
0: on. Looking forward to uh, some good conversation this morning.
1: Yeah. I saw you down at the Razor Bar Conference. I've been a fan of you uh, for some time now, just doing some ridiculous things when it comes to iron. Most people don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to triple a thousand pounds on a back squat. They, they always kind of start
0: somewhere. Let's, let's not forget uh, the goal was to triple it on the deadlift and the squat, which I, I did. Not, there was a separation of a few years there, not one same day. Um, but uh, yeah, that uh, doesn't come out of nowhere.
1: Where, where did that kind of come from? Your background growing up when it gets into weights? Everyone's kind of got a story. What was yours?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's not like there was this, you know, one day or one thing. Uh, but I I grew up a very unique background. It's actually the it's covered in a best-selling autobiography actually, uh, The Eagle and the Dragon and It involves growing up homeless in the in the mountains and so really dealing with physically dealing with the environment, uh, having to live in you know in uh, condemned homes, in tents, in tree forts uh, in the Northern California wilderness and How does that relate to fitness? Well, I was physical activity was something that was huge for me just in life in general in that fashion. So I was helping my parents with cutting wood, with mining, with all these sorts of things. But at the same time, I was also in this uh, completely other like mental aspect. Uh, You know, I read constantly. And so in school, I was didn't have a lot of friends. We're always moving around from one school to the next. I, you know, we had nothing. So clothing, things like that, I was kind of made fun of. And so I had a lot of, I guess, um, self-confidence issues. Right. Um, But I was still, you know, I was usually the smartest guy in the class. I was that nerd type uh, mentality. And so, uh, but at the same time, like I was very physical. And so, I decided that I was going to, you know, start getting involved in sports and lifting weights to kind of counter that more academic side of of, of things. And so I started just like running with weights and doing push ups and jump squats to failure because uh, I didn't have I didn't have anything right. And that's that started I think around 1988 or so, and I was about. 12 years old is when I really first picked up physical fitness and then through high school, you know, saving up some money, mowing lawns and things like that. And I, I got myself the Arnold encyclopedia of bodybuilding and Bill, Bill, Bill Pearl's book and uh, a few others and found some concrete, some used concrete plates they used to have, you know, they were plastic coated, yeah, all yeah, yeah. falling apart. Cause I, with the, uh, the, the hollow tube barbells and I put it out on the back deck. And then during the winter, I had a little room and I had it next to my bed and I, I started weight training and that has been a pretty central part of my life. I mean, there's, there was a few breaks in the nineties, but the impact of being able to have control of my environment, push my limits and just feel and experience, in my opinion, like who you are, what you're capable of in that, in that moment, in the gym, in that environment, you're, you're able to know what you're, what you're made of, what your limitations are and nobody else knows exactly where you're at, but it's, it's to me was a a valuable thing and helped me a lot with understanding myself and building my, my confidence. So by the time I graduated high school, I was you know, valedictorian, but also a state level athlete. Mm-hmm. And that what, was, uh, What
1: sports did you play in, in high school?
0: I did uh, cross country, which I yep. was absolutely horrible on. So that was not the one I was good at, <laughs> but that was prep for, for wrestling, uh, wrestling my senior year. I went all the way through districts and all the way through state without having a single offensive point uh, scored against me until the final match, which I got in my head. And I was uh, just tossing around the three-time state t- champion and uh, got uh, a little uh, little cocky, a little in my head because of some comments that were made about, like, how fast he was going to beat me mm. um, that had gotten back to me before the match. And I just, I did some things I don't normally do. And then I ended up getting beat out of, like, out of nowhere. And uh, so uh, that was... Uh, <clears throat> uh that was that and then I did uh, uh, track and field which I was fairly competent at but I didn't understand uh, specificity of training so I ran the 3,000 the 1500 the 800 the 400 the 200 the 100 <laughs> shot put discus long jump uh, you name it i I did it right and so I was at a pretty decent level at all those but I wasn't state level at anything, uh, for that reason. So, um, you know, looking back in retrospect, it's pretty easy to understand why, but, uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun. So that was, uh, I guess all that mattered. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I guess if the steeplechase was available, you would have jumped into eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. And I, I think this is a, a bit of a common story where you hear of someone who's got some good or great athletic background to then go on to do some pretty cool things in the strength world when it comes to to barbell training or any variation of it. But you're, you know, sometimes we run into people who are quite, quite competent at barbell training and their background from an education standpoint is, you know, they're just blue collar. You know, I work laying pipe every day. Uh, Your laying of pipe is a bit different. Your education background is, is quite impressive.
0: Yeah, so I, I went to school for, uh, I had a full academic scholarship, which I needed because again, you know, we were, you know, a, a large family living on less than $5,000 a year. And that's, it's a very different poor than what you see, like sometimes today. Uh, and, and I was able to, to secure that went to school for um, a dual engineering and graduated early. Cause I was working full time and I needed to, uh, to be done. Uh, interesting note. I'd started raising my sisters at the same time because to get them out of the toxic environment that they were in, mm. I took custody of my three uh, younger sisters and was raising them while I did that and worked on my MBA uh, after that and was advancing my career. And so uh, that was, I think I finished my MBA around 2003 or so. Uh, engineering in the late nineties. And <clears throat> I started powerlifting in 2000 or 2001 somewhere. I think it was 2000 just uh, yeah. And then uh, I kind of all mixed together because then later I started, I was a very technical lifter, but I started getting a series of injuries and I wanted to know more And so I started taking a bunch of different courses, meeting people, and then finally ended up on this path of doing a lot of clinical continuing education uh, on uh, kinesiology, developmental kinesiology, neurology. So I spent years chasing that from an educational aspect as well. So I ended up developing friendships and relationships with some of the best people in those areas, the people that write books uh, on that. So you know the likes of uh, uh, Dr. Craig Liebenson, Dr. Kelly Staret, Dr. Stu McGill, um, uh, uh, and many others. Like uh, I know nearly all the the instructors out of the uh, the Prague School of Medicine on uh, DNS. I've taught alongside nearly every one of these people, as well as Mm -hmm. in DNS. I've lectured at physical therapy and chiropractic colleges. So I don't have a degree in any of this stuff, but for me, there was a lot of common themes when we look at this, you know, things through this neurological lens, the biomechanics. And so I would say I am a, I'm an engineer, with a specialist in biomechanics with a high level of understanding of kinesiology and neurology. So, uh, and an athlete. So it's, a, it's an interesting lens that I have to, to view the world with.
1: Well, too many times you always hear of someone, you know, they always reference the research, the research, the research, but they've never touched a barbell. And then sometimes you have someone who always touches the barbell, but they don't know how to, how to read an article, right? You, you're, you're the best of both.
0: Well, to me, it's something that you, that, that for true mastery, you have to do both. You have to, you can be the research person. You could be doing the studies, but even, but unless you've been in the position and know and feel it at the same time, you still don't truly know it. So it's a matter of being able to walk the walk, but also do the dive to understand the scientific reasoning and the approach and the, everything behind that as well. And so that is why I've always been a proponent and pushed both those directions. That's why I chased, you know, doing what I called the grand goals to be the, the, the first and still only person that both squatted a thousand pounds and deadlifted a thousand pounds and did, did both for reps. Why? Because foundation of what I teach, well, it's not the only thing, um, so we're looking at the global priorities in the body. So I look at priorities based on, look at priorities based on the largest global impact. So number one is going to be the ability to control and manage spinal mechanics. I can't look at the shoulder. I can't look at the foot, the ankle. I can't look at those things unless we're able to, to manage that. Now I'm not saying tighten it or just stiffen. It. I'm saying the ability to control and manage it. The second in priorities would be the foot and ankle complex. Right. And so if I'm thinking through that and I'm teaching the content on how to do that and how to assess it and how to see those things, what should, what are the two most basic foundational movements that can demonstrate competency in that? Right. One is, the squat, which is essentially getting to the final phases of the first nine months of development as a child, where you're moving in from to a standing position through multiple patterns, but through the finalist, the squatting to standing and this. So it's an innate thing that's built into all of our, all of our neurology and base patterns. Second being just being able to pick something up off the ground. Right. And so we see people, Anybody that's ever done that for a thousand pounds is an incredibly gifted person has worked their ass off, but there's only five or six people that have done it for the squat and same for the deadlift. Nobody's ever done both because there's a little bit of leverages that play a role in here. So Mm -hmm. if you're good at one, if that far of an extreme, it might not be biased for you to be able to do the other. And that was what I wanted to prove that I can do this through pushing the ability that I have around being able to control and manage it. And, and that covers how my recovery and all these other things play a role into, into that. And that, uh, so it's a matter of taking and compiling all this research and education and then walking the walk, demonstrate in mm-hmm. it. And man, you learn so much. It's like the ultimate science experiment. When you put yourself on the edge of what is capable, you can learn things in a matter of days that might take you years or decades when you don't. So like in the course of developing to that, you know, I squatted 800 pounds for every single day for 30 days at one point in time. Jeez. I deadlifted 881 pounds. That's 400 kilos every single day for 17 days. Had an injury on the, uh, the 17th day. So I derailed and didn't make, a. Uh, uh, but you know those can't, can't understand that, why. <laughs> and uh, but you learn so much. You can just you're on that that ragged edge of finding, you know, what works, what tweaks, what variations. And so for me, it's it's a it's an incredible self discovery process. In mm-hmm. that if that makes sense. Yep. And yeah. not just for myself, but you know, the the human body, the physiology, uh, everything around recovery, movement, position.
1: And you, you mentioned uh, before some of the people that influenced you, and they worked with uh, uh, our Canadian friend, Doctor Stu McGill. So, did you did you have a, a concept of spine biomechanics prior to meeting McGill? Because I know that you're you know you're big on some similarities between the two. Um, was he a big influence on you? Did you have a bunch of back injuries in the early days of lifting that led you you know in the in the spine stuff?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've herniated L four L five. I've had to learn to walk again. Uh, Had nerve damage that's taken, you know, multiple years to really fully heal. And so um, I know what that's like, what it's like to be completely incapacitated and, you know, been in a walker. And like I said, had to work towards like standing and walking again and then to be able to come back and do what I've done and do it with no pain. So that's that's pretty, you know, like people like, mm-hmm. oh, you're just not old enough yet to experience or know and like no, I I've, I've lived through all that. So uh, the. Um, I've gotten to meet a lot of people through the network uh, that I have, and so usually I'm yeah, I, I know a lot of the material that is that those people teach before meeting them. I'm going to their courses. But the, the interesting thing is when you're at that, when you're at that point and you're performing and doing the things and putting those things in practice and able to step up on stage and be able, you know, the first, the first time I met McGill, well, actually the first time I met him, he climbed under my truck after dinner. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> under your placed- truck, under my truck, yes. So <laughs> he's a pretty uh,
1: tall guy. How big's your truck?
0: <laughs> uh, very big. So <laughs> right now it's got forty six inch tall tires on it. So oh, yes, sir. Um, I don't know what that equates to for our uh, uh, our, our <clears throat> Canadian friends, but uh,
1: most of uh, us, most of us don't even use metric.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, I think I had like forty two inch tires on that one at the time. So mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, we're, we're having dinner and we're talking shop and learning about each other. And, uh, and he's like, I heard about your truck. He's like, let's go take a look at it, you know, after, after dinner. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I get out there and he rolls under it and he starts checking out, like, cause I design all my own suspension. I design all my own steering. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that I, 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 I do as a hobby. Is I uh, have a high level of understanding on the, on that, and and he rolls out and he's like, you know what you're doing. <laughs> he's like, he's like, it's, it's a really interesting thing. He's like, it is building a vehicle, a performance vehicle, is just like building a performance human. It's the balance of stability and mobility, and the more that you push either one of those directions, the more that you have to 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 build the other pieces to ensure your ability to be able to be resilient. And, um, and so it was, uh, so it was really interesting discussion because we got down the the path of engineering, but, you know, we're, we're talking a, you know, he's in town doing a three-day seminar on the, uh, the back. And then I think it was on the third day I ended up, he called me up and I ended up speaking for about an hour. And so that was the first time I, I met Doctor Stu McGill. I ended up speaking alongside him in front of 150 clinicians <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> and similar story with uh, Doctor Craig Liebenson. Uh, the first time that uh, we met, I think on day three, I ended up speaking for an hour at um, uh, one of his. I'm trying to remember which course that was. Um, anyway, it was a uh, uh, it was something based off of uh, DNS at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Uh, I think it was a series three series. It's like a nine day course. Mm -hmm. And, but that first time that we met, I ended up speaking, you know, with him uh, at the, at the course, which again, it was, you know, class full of clinicians. And then it's just like strength trainer guy over here. And uh, you know, we start getting to know each other and it's because of the side conversations. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to sit there and actually not repeat and talk about what the research says or, um, you know, what we're specifically teaching right there, but what is the nuance and how does that apply in other positions and in getting down the depths of like, oh, I don't know this. I don't have the answer for this. What's your thoughts. And it's really, that's where, that's what I meant by once you're at that level, those discussions and what you can learn is far beyond what's in the lecture, what's in the textbook. And so that has helped me a lot because, uh, you know the areas that i play in are unexplored really by what they what they teach right so yeah. um so that's a a unique position to be in and i'm really thankful for the the ability to have those relationships and be able to uh, have those conversations and provide and be b- both providing and learning uh, at the same time
1: mm-hmm. engineering a truck like engineering a human body how would you differ between engineering someone who wants to squat 300 pounds and deadlift 300 pounds to you? Like, what do you have to engineer to squat and deadlift uh, a grand for a triple each? What's the difference in the human suspension?
0: <laughs> um, so I, I don't think that I need to go into the depths of what's involved to do it for a thousand pounds, because we're talking about managing things to such an ultra fine level that there is no capability for anyone that isn't solely dedicated to that with that level of knowledge to be able to pull it off. Cause I did, I did the deadlift when I was 260 pounds, anybody else that has done it, it was 380 to 440 pounds. Yeah. And they'd only done it for a single. When I did the squat, I was 280 pounds. Anybody doing that was 360 to 440 pounds. So it was not just massive brute strength. The interesting thing is to pull that off. I actually had to squat and deadlift with more frequency and more intensity than you will find recorded anywhere from anyone having done, uh, you know, the squat, the final phases of that, you know, I was doing a eight to nine repetitions a week within a range that was, it started. So a, several months out, the average load for those repetitions was 950 pounds. And it worked up by about uh, four to six pounds every week until my final average load was, I think, 983 pounds for nine repetitions that are in a workout. Not, not a single set that was broken into three sets, but it might have been four sets at times, uh, depending on where I was. Nine was so your pull number. We you have and to repeat that, repeat that week yeah. over week, the level of things that went in to manage that, to run in to manage the recovery, to went in to manage the position. Like I had a team to do that, you know, and mm-hmm. it just goes just so far down the deep end of like it's all the same things, it's just managing it to such a refined level, mm-hmm. you know, looking at lasering you know, my hip position and thorac position and going, okay, this is what we're going to do this week from a soft tissue standpoint. And this is what we're going to do from a movement standpoint, because this is what we saw in the prior weeks. And we've seen, now we saw a half a degree shift here. We need to bring that back. And then how soon do we start that? We start that as soon as I'm done with my squat, knee wraps come off and I'm on the floor, And we're immediately there because the most amount of time that I can have moving well and recovering the better how I'm managing both passive and active blood flow restriction through the week. How I'm like, there's just the depth of that is just insane. And you can't do that. Mm -hmm. I had to build a life to be able to chase that, but conceptually it's the same, same exact things for a 300 pound squat and deadlift, just not to that depth of precision and accuracy on the, on those things, mm-hmm. right? I guess
1: you, I guess you could say to someone who wants to do 300, it's like it's get your ass to the gym a couple times a week, you know, get some good technique, progressive overload over time, you know, don't get don't get hurt, don't do too much. Um, but then for you, um, yeah,
0: so yeah, that's straightforward, right? So it's <clears throat> um, we want to have good movement patterns, and we then want to load those, right? And we want to load those in a fashion uh, that <clears throat> we're able to recover from. So that means, you know, over time, we want to do just what I did, which is move the average load up. So you're going to have some peaks in there, but your peaks, you don't want to spike your average load um, in volume from one week to the next more than 10 or 15%, uh, which means that's how you manage also your deloads, vacation time, all the other things so that you, when you come back, you're not overloading so that you're having, you know, a little bit of you know, tightness in an elbow or shoulder or something that uh, comes up five or six weeks later, right? So it's managing that stuff. It's understanding that we're always trying to refine technique. And if you've got major faults, we need to work on that. But wherever possible, we want to fix that in the movement because spending time, you know, doing correctives and all this other stuff may be useful for proprioception of things that I do and teach uh, awareness, but it's not providing any sort of adaptive change in the body. So we need to be able to actually do that. And if we can do that in the squat and understand that, like, oh, this is actually how I root to the floor properly. If I do this correctly during it, ah, my hip pain and my knee pain go away or my back pain go away. Right. And then, but loading, that's going to bring change, not spending time on a mat. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need that in the process, but it's this, that, you know, these, these are very base level you know, thing. So it's yeah, move well. <laughs> Recovery is going to be sleep. Then it's going to be movement and blood flow, uh, followed with the proper nutrient, and then uh, adding load to that over time, but not too much, not too fast. Uh, and then understanding why some of the things that I'm I'm talking about makes sense. So if we start getting pains, if we start losing mobility, it's not. That, oh, it's because I'm not doing enough stretching or the other stuff. It's driving back to understanding what is causing that. Well, we'll go back to automotive analogies. All right. So you're in your car and you're driving around this corner. You got a little bit of snow on there because you're in Canada Mm -hmm. and (laughs) uh, you're you're sliding a little bit and the traction control kicks on. So what do we have there? We have a brain. We have we have wiring that's running out. It's, it's responding to what the information is coming from the sensors, uh, which are the nerves. And then it's sending that to the brain and then it's coming back and it's going, hey, you're unstable, you're unsafe. Detunes the engine and reduces the shift patterns, the transmission, which then allows that routing to connect a little better by reducing the power output, which then makes you, less likely to slide off the road and burn a fiery death protecting you. So what does that mean for you? Well, that means that if you're starting to lose a little bit of mobility, it means you're not moving. Well, squats aren't the problem. Your shitty squat is the problem (laughs) because it's saying traction control, turn on, let's start inhibiting the movement around that joint. Right. And that's where this stuff comes from. So it's like, yeah, me freaking thousand pound squatter I can drop down and damn do, near do the splits and I don't stretch mm-hmm. right that good quality movement delivers that so uh, we get too caught up in like oh now I got to chase 45 minutes worth of preparatory stuff to be able to do this you it's a must must thing right and but you're losing time from training and so if we move well but then you know hey Things aren't always perfect, so we may need to manage some triage. Now, about 80% of injuries and accidents come from the loading side. So if we're loading beyond a capacity that we can recover from, and that happens from spiking those acute loads too much, that's where that happens. And Typically, it happens around five to six weeks after you know a, a phase of, of doing that. So some, that's why people don't necessarily make that connection because it doesn't happen then. Uh, but then it starts nagging. And then now your cumulative, you know, training over time actually goes down because you're taking time off or taking Mm -hmm. it easy. uh, So So it's like driving back. If you're having problems, you have a problem with your training program or you have a problem with your movement. You may need to do band-aids to fix it, but that's triage work and understand, do it. I can't get in my shoulders in a position to do an overhead movement. Well, clean it up, get in an overhead position and do your training. But if you keep having to repeat this stuff, if you keep having to roll out your your, your, your quads every and you're doing it six months from now, fucking do the work and figure out what you're doing wrong mm-hmm. and fix it. And most people don't want to do that or think that, oh, I did that. I got it. Like, I'm still I was still doing that all the way to the end of this, you know, and I was running into, you know, issues. It's like, oh, I'm not quite doing this right. Get back to basics. Get back to basics. It's really fundamental stuff.
1: Is that where, um, when you say every five to six weeks, things start to uh, creep up on people? Do you think that that's the ideal time to program and deload for strength training specifics, five to six weeks, four weeks, seven weeks? When you were chasing a thou for a trip, how often were you deloading?
0: I didn't deload. Yeah. Um, So uh, there's no fundamental reason for uh, having necessarily a deload. Um, there are times in major blocks of training where I'm shifting and maybe there's a transitional week, maybe from one week to the next, but if you're deloading, we understand what you're doing is you're taking your average load down. And so now you have to ramp back into it as well. Mm-hmm. So taking, particularly taking a whole week off just to deload, I don't recommend. That means if you're needing to do that, that means your training program is, is not good if you need to do that. Too Um, so, but if it works for you in your life, Hey, that's another thing. Like, Hey, I, if I've got a vacation planned, I'm just going to take some time off. I'm not going to freaking like make sure unless there's a reason to like, Oh, I got to freaking wake up early and go hit the training before the wife and kids are up, you know, and then I'm tired in the afternoon, but like, you know, figure life out. You know, you could, you could work this so that you actually accumulate more fatigue during the time leading up to it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and like all your mentors are saying, hey, hey, stop, stop that last week, but you're still pushing because you know you're going to have that week there and you plan that. That's programming, mm-hmm. right? So just the understand the whys of the things that you're doing. So uh, the five or six weeks is based on uh, some, you know uh, a poor choice in the training plan and the outputs of that and just saying, You're not going to feel your elbow hurt that week. But you know, if it was too much, you know, five or six weeks later or four, somewhere in that range, you might start getting the rip, you know, the elbow or the wrist or whatever it is. And then now that's cumulative. And now that's affecting you for the next three months of being able to like train at your full level and limiting your ability. Right. So yeah, so so I'm I'm not saying don't deload, um, but you may have a, a lower week while you're recovering, but like the full, just like, you know, the West side methodology of like train for four weeks, take a week off. Um, I don't know if they still do stuff like that or promote similar concepts, but it isn't necessarily the thing, you know, but if you're pushing too hard, you know, but if you've got a well-managed training program and you're looking at all the things that are outputting from that, Uh, There's very much less of a need to, to do that. And you're going to have more of what I call a transitional week as you Mm -hmm. shift from one, one block to another where you're still training. It's a little lighter. um, It's allowing that, but you're not, you're not uh, losing all of your capacity. Uh, Well, all is the wrong word there, but (laughs) you get my point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're also not going to you know, go to Punta Cana and find 950 pounds to be able to be put on
0: a bar <laughs> before exactly we go have
1: a few mojitos.
0: But if you, if if you built to the point where you're, you've got the, you know, something that is either an acute or chronic injury. And so you're going, well, it's hitting up about that time. So I need to do a full deload so I can recover from that. Well, you're probably not going to recover from that in a week. And that's my point. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to get to a point where you're doing that. So my, my point is I'm trying to make is that just pushing people to understand and look a bit deeper, and it's going to tell you things that maybe you don't want to hear. Um, and that is around uh, improving the quality of your movement and managing your training better.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you also did uh, uh, quite well, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here is you've engineered and changed. A lot of the equipment utilized in the commercial gym setting right the duffalo bar the transformer bar like where did that come from like why why did you decide to change some of those things specifically like your your bread and butter the duffalo bar how does that impact training for people why did you decide to change it
0: yeah well because i wanted to do things that nobody's ever done before and uh i wanted to be the best in the world and that sounds like freaking lofty goals but uh, there's uh, three things that you need to do that and you need the you need the right in environment so that's the physical you know environment around you, your internal mental environment, all those things that feed into uh, that performance setting. You need the right methodology which we just talked about and you need the right tools. And so this is something that I've uh, you could apply to many things in life, right And so what I found is, that we have been shoving people. I, I try to relay a lot of things back to like basic, like playground type things. So um, it, when we if we end up typing into the actual physics of what's happening with these tools, we'll be using a playground tool, uh, playground toys to explain that. Uh, but for the most part, we're shoving, you know, what we learn in preschool, we're shoving a round hole, a round peg through a square hole. And expecting that everybody pushes, you know, is able to do this same thing. Everybody should be able to back squat to this depth with a bar on their back. Well, no, everybody should be able to move within that uh, that capacity, and probably you know, move within those ranges as well, but saying that we all need to be able to move there with a, you know, a center of mass specifically in this one point on the body that is completely arbitrary, uh, overriding the body mass itself. Okay. Now we're getting into something that isn't a reality, right? Mm -hmm. People have different limb links, different leverages, different attachments, points of muscles, different mobility restrictions, um, which, it's not just mobility restrictions, but also the, the 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 structure and shape of the joint, which is determined uh, by, your, uh, by your genetic background. Um, so we start pushing everybody like, and I understand where it comes from because there's so many like new niche things coming out. Oh, this special, this, this, this is gonna re change ch- training. And it's like, you know, we need to stick to the basic stuff because it it, it, it works, right? But then there's a point of like, why a barbell? Why a dumbbell? Why a, you know, a specific pulley on a machine? Why? It doesn't mean that there's not opportunity for improvement. So everything my design philosophy is using that lens that I have, yeah, there's a wrong up, lens <laughs> that I have uh, from <clears throat> uh, this background in both engineering uh, kinesiology, neurology, and that of an athlete to go, what do I see? If I look at this from a perspective and principles, common principles around movement and loading first, what do I see? And I see the opportunity for being able to refine these tools to better accommodate for those differences, those differences in leverage, mobility restrictions, um, training needs. And so the tools I designed to be able to accommodate for that. It's that simple. Like take the, the transformer car. So instead of putting the load in this very one specific spot, we freed up both its distance from center and away from the body. And that allows us to actually manipulate the spinal mechanics. We can completely change how a squat is done and put anybody in a position to be successful. So we're able to, if we're fighting the barbell, let's say a traditional squat with a barbell, what happens? He puts a huge external rotational demand on the shoulder to get in in position. All right. Well, along with that is a lot of strain on the bicep tendon. A lot of people aren't aware when they're feeling uh, shoulder pain while they're pressing. It's actually oftentimes a result of their squatting, not their pressing Mm. um, carry over to that. But if we let that win or we don't understand positioning, we'll also... Raise and elevate at the rib cage, and that'll break, cause a disconnect between um, the relationship between the diaphragm and pelvis. And if those that relationship isn't correct, then we're not able to to eccentrically load the abdominal cavity uh, with the use of the diaphragm, which then causes a co contraction of the thoracolumbar musculature, the obliques, the TVA, all these items to create the pressure. Uh, that is actually used to stabilize and manage the spine mechanics. So can Mm. you do it with a straight barbell? Yes, but it requires a significant level of skill and technique and puts strain on areas that we don't, so we get back to this adaptation, that we don't adapt to. Mm. Putting stress on the joints and related structures that were non-adaptive. So if I can change that, And literally can, because with this bar, you can move that load in space. What does that do? The load always stays over the midfoot, basic, (laughs) basic physics, right? And so we're actually manipulating the spine around it and we're manipulating how that load is applied to the hip joint and all the, and and all the tissue around that. And so, uh, what that allows us to do is be able to alleviate those non-adaptive stresses while at the same time, allowing us to get a greater training effect. So as I'm doing that, I'm loading up the posterior chain more, but the better pattern is automatically going to have people squatting deeper and better position. which is going to load up the anterior chain more. What is that? Oh, that's, that's more athletic too. At the same mm-hmm. time, imagine that it's going to cue things like the sternal, the pelvis relationship. It's going to be our handle position is different than let's say a safety squat bar, which I don't like uh, uh, associating ours with, but those are in a really strange high rack position, which doesn't put the lats in an optimal position to be able to engage as a spinal stabilizer, which is the connection between the shoulder and, Mm -hmm. and all those, uh, those core structure that I just talked about and how they're, they're able to stabilize. And so what happens when you watch people go towards failure maximally or fatigue wise with the safety squat bar, they round over losing control at the TL junction. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is, so you use the bar, you adjust a setting that feels good. Your spinal position is going to be way better. You're going to start squatting deeper with the knees in a better position, better rooting. You're going to have better stabilization. You're going to train the muscles better. while at the same time, reducing the loads that we can't adapt to.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: feels good. It delivers better results. It allows you. So now we're not just talking about injury stuff here and comfort. What happens if I'm in better position, getting better outputs, not having stress that is really hard to or difficult to, to adapt to? I can train, to. Yeah, train with more volume and more frequency. And what does that net? Being stronger.
1: A, a thousand so, pounds three times. As long as exactly, you can train every day.
0: <laughs> because I could train more frequently with more volume over time than anyone else, because I stayed on top of it. And I had, like I said, soft tissue tools, which we have a line of those. I don't say not something people have to have, but if you reach a triage point where some, something happens, it's a thing that can get you back and, uh, allow you to, uh, regain your range of motion, but then you still have to go right from there to actually loading it to elicit the the results. That's Mm. one of the, uh, the big things people like bash on uh, soft tissue tools going, well, the research says it's not lasting. Well, yeah, no shit. Were you expecting that to be the fix? No. Now it allows you to get into a range, but now you fix it by going and training in that range that you couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. That's one piece of the puzzle. Why fucking noise the shit out of me when it's, Mm -hmm. it's always somebody that's first or second year, uh, you know, exercise science uh, school student. That's like, here's all the research. I'm like, No shit. That's research for like one piece of the puzzle over here. Now let's think about how we apply that as a process as a whole, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, that's because you've never freaking trained, (laughs) really trained. Yeah. That's
1: a, that, that, that's the magic, the piece putting the two together as we talked about earlier on in the conversation here.
0: Yeah. So Uh, yeah, the other tools. uh, So similar, I I talk about playground physics. uh, So I mentioned that. So like, uh, the, the trap bar, the Cadillac bar, some of the other products are all built around these, uh, leverage concepts. So it's about, um, improving, uh, the distal stability. So let's just take, for example, a football bar or a mm-hmm. Swiss bars, they're called multi-grip bench bar. People like to use them because it provides a neutral grip, which then gets the, the internal and external rotational bias of the shoulder in a better position while benching. But in fact, as soon as you're any level of strength, they suck, uh, because, Um, you take them out and they want to crush your face and you're trying to control it. You come down and touch your, your, your chest and it moves position. And, um, the concept is kind of there, but there's some, some big misses. So it is, it's a teeter totter. So if you walk into a playground, a teeter totter will always be sitting on one side or the other.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And the reason is, is, well, there's, there is a balance point, but it's infinitely perfect, which means can never actually be achieved, all right? And that's what we're doing. So it's inducing this instability. Uh, So that's because center of mass and center of rotation are on the same plane. Once it's offset off of 90 degrees, um, that comes into effect, it becomes a teeter-totter. And so what we want is to move the center of mass below center of rotation. If we do that, that's going to be like a swing. You go into a playground, where does this sit? It sits. It always stabilizes. So like the Cadillac bar has a beautiful arch going through it so that the center of mass is below the hand positions and allows you people get off the first time because they're so used to choking up on one side. And that, you know, it's like, Oh, I have to work around this equipment. It's like, no, 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 just grab it in the middle of the handle. That's all right. It's like, it's going to do it. Right. And then you come out and then, Every handle width is a little bit different. There's a little bit uh, a little bit uh, less angle as you go wider because there's a difference for, to internal to external rotational bias as you go further, but still leaving just a little bit uh, left for, for cueing of the external rotation for the lat as a stabilizer again, right? Mm-hmm. So really fine things, but all of a sudden you can take a bar and take it to people that cannot bench a straight bar to their chest empty without pain. And I did this with uh, major league baseball was when I prototyped this bar because every, I knew, I, I know we work with all the teams, We're 29 of the 30 teams. And, and uh, most of the strength coaches have bad shoulders. Can't bench, you know, either pain standard, or post-surgery, whatever coach. Yep, standard, you know? Yep. And so I take, I, I'm like, I'm going to take this bar in. And over three days, I showed the bar during spring training to, you know, three coaches a day, basically. And every time, same, same story. Well, just about like 70, 80% of them are Mm -hmm. are this way. And it's like, at the end of it, every single one of them had two plates on there and was doing it for reps and their staffs standing around with their jaws hanging going, how bad's it hurt? And understand it's also a three inch greater range of motion. Mm and they get up and they go, no pain. Why? The traction control was turned off. We turned off the inhibition by we're putting different inputs into the brain, which is now turning off those protective mechanisms Mm -hmm. that are causing the pain when they're trying to press, as well as physically getting the joint in a better position. But this stack, getting everything stacked, providing some balance, doing all this, completely changed, so now, they went from no bar, like an empty bar can't take to the chest without pain to benching 225 pounds for reps to a three inch greater range of motion with no pain over and over and over again. Now I caveat that if you've got an internal, uh, rotational deficit of uh, the extra range of motion, you would want to limit that because that's going to pull the shoulder forward and mm-hmm. cause some of the tra- mm-hmm. traction control to turn back on, uh, but then you would use this soft tissue device, clean that up. Now go train. Oh, now everything uh is cleaned up. So uh if that's the case, usually internal rotational bias, I would go into um uh, uh pec, pec minor. Uh sometimes it'll be into uh you now traps, uh, always a easy payoff, but uh subscap, uh trying to and lat trying to pull those off of the rib cage as well is always a good idea. But usually I can get that cleaned up in about five minutes. Um <clears throat> I didn't have to do that on any of these. I'm just like giving a disclaimer If somebody like buys the bar and goes, I still can't like, there are some occasions and that's, yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. So that same design philosophy is built into all of our, our tools. Like, and what does that mean? What does that mean for you? What does that mean? Well, one, like if you've got a client, they're going to feel way better. They're going to get greater results. The tools are going to feel way better. And so like what we find in like a training popular or a, people at trainers or gyms or commercial gyms is that your retention rates are way higher. So like in those settings, I recommend buying those bars for the trainer group. And then uh, that allows your trainers to use them. And then people want to stay within that environment, right? Mm-hmm. um, and your retention rates go way up because one, they're getting way better results. Everything feels better. They don't even necessarily have to know this stuff, but they'll intrinsically know, like, I don't want to go back to that. Now, if you're just a gym owner as a whole, maybe you just want to, and your, you know, your base of what you're trying to do is retain gym members. You'd have that open to the open population, but I'm just, you know, just dis- discussing two different strategies based on the, the approach, right?
1: Yeah. Mo- mo- most commercial gyms have, you know, eight barbells. Right. They just got standard old barbells, dumbbells. They got the ropes that are close together for the cable press down and and a lot of variety. Um, But I I definitely can see what you're talking about there, how you can use the variety of these things because there's so many different people in the gym. I mean, there's a lot of machines that not everyone even fits into right off the bat.
0: Yep. Yep. It was just like uh, our cue bells. It's a very first like new advancement in a handheld weight since a dumbbell and a kettlebell. And do everything that I can do with a dumbbell, a kettlebell, a center mass bell. But I can completely reframe my training. I can take away pain and movements that people would normally have with those with the same the same leverage concept. But I can mm-hmm. also play around with the leverage to actually change the force curve of a movement. I can have variable loading as a result of it. So I only need a few of them, and I can do uh, drop sets or giant sets or supersets with never having to set a weight down because the same weight just depending on how I help hold it in my hand and position it mm-hmm. can equal a lot of, a, a lot of different, well, it's not a lot of different weights. The weight is what it is, but the output is what's is created. It's a, it's a, it's a moment arm that creates a torque load on the joint. And that's what's, that's a, what's eliciting the force to the muscle. That's getting the um, you know, that you're getting the training response to. Mm-hmm. And so when we understand that we can understand like, Oh, the same weight can apply a different, uh, different level of torque to the joint. And so mm-hmm. weight is one way of, of uh, accomplishing that, um, but we can also change position to accomplish that. Yeah.
1: What, what's, what's next for you? You hit a thousand pounds on squat and dead. You know, Are you still uh, big into training now or are you just focus so much more on the business side of Kabuki strength?
0: Uh, so I did kind of allude to how much is involved with doing that, right? <laughs> So So that is not something that is uh, sustainable to push at that levels for long periods of time. I'm Mm -hmm. turning 45 in a month. And that is what I wanted to end my strength training career on was the completion of that. It took me five years and I'm very proud of it. There's a movie coming out, a documentary. You can watch the trailer on my website, chrisduffin.com. You can also get a, a free part of the first part of my book, absolutely free. Just sign up for the newsletter, uh, Chris like muffin, but with a D, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> how many times have you said that in your life? <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate autocorrect on stuff, always changing, uh, Duffin to muffin. But then when I started doing this stuff, I'm like, man, they're so easy to like, cause people are like, is that a D is it an S like, t- like, what? you know, and I'm like, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my, my training today is built around leaving me feeling uh, refreshed and ready mm-hmm. and limiting the amount of time so that I can pour more of those efforts into the business. I don't need to get any stronger at this point in time. So I'm actually pairing off muscle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm down to 225 right now, which is the lightest I've been in close to two decades. <laughs> uh <laughs> And, um, so my, my sessions are typically about 40, maybe 50 minutes long, high intensity. So I use a lot of, uh, well, all the tools, uh, Kratos, Q bells, um, probably compromise, uh, about 70% of that because of the variable loading and the Mm -hmm. metabolic effect. So with those, uh, it's nonstop. Like I just posted a video of like doing a Q bell giant set and it was a fairly simple one. And you can see that I'm, you know, I'll, I'll go for four or five minutes just with those nonstop, nonstop, a constant time under tension. A lot of times I'll mix that with BFR. The Kratos is even more variable. It's a, it's a flywheel. Uh, mm-hmm. It's patented. We have the best value for your price out there because the patent we have on um, multiple locations off of one flywheel. So you can, it's one machine. It does everything. You mm-hmm. can squat, you can deadlift. You can do any uh, vertical pulley movement, any ground movement. It's pretty damn cool. And uh, but it's variable tension. So whatever you put into it, you get back. So as you're fatiguing out, you're not changing weights, same thing with the, with the cue bells, right? So that works really great for me. And I can ramp up the intensity if I want, uh, adding some uh, blood flow restriction. And so I can get a ton of training I can walk away feeling great. And then I'll mix in, uh, you know, doing some good mornings with the, uh, with, with, with the transformer bar, uh, doing some shrugs and deadlifts with the, with the trap bar. Um, I still love pressing, um, to me these days, since I don't do a lot of flat bench, I do mostly incline bench with the, with the Cadillac bar. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's crazy. So that's, that's the majority of my training that makes up the other 30%, but that's cause I'm, do I need to get stronger No, <laughs> My bone density is you know, five standard deviations above the norm. Uh, I can, I can drop hundreds and I have dropped hundreds of pounds off my, my max and that's okay. Yeah. When
1: when, when your max is in, you know, four, four digits, (laughs) it's okay to do that.
0: Yeah. It's okay.
1: Yeah. Chris, you're the real, you're the real life juggernaut. I always thought of you as, you know, the Marvel character Juggernaut, um, just when it comes to, like, what your presence is with the barbell, and it's really nice to hear you talk about, you know, your scientific background, your engineering background, how it impacted your training, as well as all the stuff you're doing now to move the fitness industry forward. So, anyone who's listening right now, we're going to put all the links in the show notes here of your website. Go get on that, on that email list. Get the copy of the first book. I'd love to see some of your products into the commercial gym settings, so we're going to make sure that this uh, this episode goes to the right people before we do that. So, Chris, I just want to formally thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you. Um, I I really appreciate. I mean, this was I really loved this interview. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that we we got in really deep on some stuff, but covered a really nice breadth of stuff. I'm I'm fantastic. Love it. I'd love to get the video recording if I can. Yeah, uh, from you. And uh, just uh, one last thing for the audience. So if you sign up for the newsletter on my main site, you will get exclusive discounts to Kabuki strength, which is all the equipment as well as education and coaching. Uh, We've got, uh, we've got seminars, all sorts of cool stuff. And There's also barefoot athletics. So the foot and ankle complex, the being able to strengthen, manage it. Uh, there's big gaps in the minimalist footwear g- environment. And mm-hmm. so finally I ended up addressing those by uh, designing and developing my own line of shoes, uh, working with uh, arguably the world's leading fashion, men's fashion shoe designer, uh, George Esquivel. Is that and what you were so wearing, wearing the at ultimate.
1: the conference? Is that what you were wearing yeah. at the conference? Yeah, those are pretty yep. sharp. I like so those. it's
0: it's the ultimate in, in basically function first with mm-hmm. a touch of fashion Yeah. and which is actually, okay. Excites, funny side story since we're on a fitness podcast. Yeah. Um, so like, if you, if you ever look at like LeBron or the rock and you see like, you know, these, you know, cool boots, their boots they're wearing, you can't see them anywhere else. They're one-offs. They cost about 10 or $15,000. Those are his. And basically like many other movie stars and, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, uh, rock stars and all this stuff, like, that that's, you know, he's an LA designer and that's what he does. And, but what's funny about that is LeBron and the rock are also Kabuki customers. <laughs> like, are, like It's like, I, I want to make the best. And it's like, you know, we're hitting right there. So they're not wearing the barefoot brand, but yeah. maybe I can get them to start doing it when they're, well, the rock's got his association with, uh, I can't compete with those. No, and no, then, no uh, build, build fast, which you'll get on there is, uh, my line of supplementation. I talked a lot about blood flow, so my staple product is this uh, Vaso Blitz here, oh, nice. um, but it's uh, it's uh, a mixture of se- two different path- nitric, os- nitric oxide pathways as well as um, uh, lactate, and that combo um, used in a um, a chronic setting, so building up like creatine, mm-hmm. will enhance your recovery even on your off days. And so it's, uh, it, it fits exactly all the stuff that I do. Everything that I do all works together. And mm-hmm. so I've really had to work very hard at trying to make everything that I do open book, nothing hidden, and it's available uh, out there.
1: Mm-hmm. Phenomenal stuff. I appreciate that. And again, everyone listening, all the links and stuff are going to be in the show notes. Chris, we got to get you to Canada. You got to come up here, maybe teach a course or something. Come to one of our one of our fitness seminars we
0: have. What do you think? I think that's a good plan.
1: Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you. See if we can make that
0: happen. Let's follow up an email.
1: Hundred percent. Thank you again, Chris. Never stop learning because life never stops teaching. If you've learned at least one thing from this podcast, and your mission is to help other people, please share this podcast with them. And a reminder: we will be releasing one episode every Monday for the entire year. So make sure to hit subscribe so you get the updated information as soon as possible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, and thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it.